The other one, there might not be a need for it. Uh, as I uh, listened to uh, James Ford at the Moody Men's Conference several weeks ago, and uh, he told the story, uh, I'm not going to try to, I don't remember word for word, but I remember he told the story of a farmer who uh, took his mule to the Kentucky Derby. And the horses and the, the jockeys and everyone was like, what's this? And finally somebody went up to the farmer and said, why'd you bring your donkey to the Kentucky Derby? He has no chance. He's not a thoroughbred. What's the point? And the farmer said, the association will do him good. So my point to that story is that this mule standing here has done well with the association of many of you here in my walk over the past 10 years. Many of you know my story. Many of you have prayed and seen God's answer to prayer. And so I just want to say thank you and I thank God and our leaders for this opportunity this morning. Um, would you pray with me? Father, thank you, Lord. And Father God, I, my prayer this morning is that as we open up your word, God, that you would speak. Father, that, you, that we would hear, Lord God, in spite of me up here, that your word would speak, Lord, and may it land God in, in hearts that are hungry for you. May they be fertile hearts, God, that as your word lands in there, it may produce a fruit, God, that is pleasing to you, Lord, that brings honor to you, God. Father, I thank you, Lord, because I know you're here. And we trust you, God, and we praise you, and we, we worship you this morning, God, and we look forward, God, as we open up your word to fully understand or, or understand just a little bit more what it means to worship you, God. Thank you, Father, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, given that we've got the heritage coming up in a few weeks, I thought this was a good story to kind of share and kind of laying out the foundation for today's uh, sermon. Um, in 1924, there was a building on that empty, it was built on the empty lot that we have on Mozart and McLean, and that's what housed the Salem's English Department. And uh, I want to get to the point on this one, but there was evidence of a problem somewhere in the 60s and 70s, I'm guessing, I'm not sure, but the result of that problem, uh, a lot of repairs needed to be made in the building. And they were made accordingly. Um, but others kept occurring, and more serious ones began to be more evident. Like cracks on the walls, uneven floors. And I'm sure there were other signs that evidenced the problem at the building on uh, McLean and Mozart. And what was found was that the, that the structure had suffered from some serious cracks in the foundation. And the repairing, the repairing of the walls and the leveling of the floors seemed pointless since the problem was much deeper than that. And the severity of the crack in the foundation was such that the building had to be demolished. The building came down in 1978. It had stood for 54 years. And just as the continual repair of these cracks on the walls uh, in a building with a faulty foundation is pointless, it would be pointless if we continued on in a series like this, the one another's, specifically today, love one another. If you walked away, if you walked away thinking that as Christians, that all you needed to do was to be more loving and more patient, more forbearing, because to focus on just being that would be like continually repairing a floor or walls in a building with a faulty foundation. And yes, we are to love one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to forbear one another. But at the heart of this command, there must be a deeper understanding that's directly tied 
to worship. And this leads us, this might lead some of you to ask them, then what is worship? Is it singing? Is it the lifting up of hands? Falling to the ground? Just expressing this emotion to God? And in part, yeah, that is. But there's more because that's all that really is is an expression of the soul. Worship is the call to a life of surrender evidenced through the one another's. And Romans chapter 12 speaks of a call to worship and the basis of that call. It also shows us what this call requires. And we'll also look at what this worship looks like. And at the end of our time in Romans, you'll see clearly that loving one another, as stated in verse 10, has everything to do with worship, especially as we look at verses 1 and 2. And the question that will remain is, how is worship reflected in your life? In the service, in the exercising of your gifts in the church, in your interpersonal relationships, in the world that we live in? Is it evident that the love of Christ flows through you? I'd like first to, if you would turn with me, to Romans chapter 12. God's word says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Search. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Second thing I learned. I didn't think I was going to need it this soon, but from uh, Pastor James Ford was a sweat rag. Very important. We begin the chat with verse 1. Where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, my brothers, brothers, by the mercies of God. And I'd like to begin by focusing on the word therefore for a bit. The meaning of the word therefore in the dictionary is consequence of that. As a result, consequently, and it's critical that we understand this especially 
as we look at the command to love one another in verse 10. When you consider the meaning and the context, Paul's appeal to the Romans is a result of four things that summarize Romans chapters 1 through 11. And that's man's guilt before a holy God. Man justified, declared right through faith in Jesus Christ. Man sanctified, made holy through the death and resurrection of Christ. The sovereignty of God with His mercy. Paul's appeal to the Romans and us here today is a call to sacrifice that defines our worship to God based on the atoning work of Jesus Christ in one word, mercies. And it's only through the mercy of God that sin is dealt with. It's only through His mercy that sin is dealt with in a manner that satisfies God's holiness. God's mercy is not absent from justice. Justice and mercy together. The Bible teaches us that we must consider the kindness and the severity of God. That's in Romans chapter 11. Tozer comments on God's mercy and justice in this way. We should banish from our minds forever the command, the common but erroneous notion that justice and judgment characterize the God of Israel. There's no difference between the Old Testament and New Testament in principle. In the New Testament, he goes on to say, there's a fuller development of redemptive truth. But one God speaks in both dispensations. And what he speaks agrees with what he is. Wherever and whenever God appears to men, he acts like himself. God is mercy as well as just. He always dealt in mercy with mankind and will always deal in justice when his mercy is despised. He is love and is a consuming fire. He offers his mercy but not at the cost or sacrifice of justice. God's justice requires payment for sin and that was carried out through his son Jesus Christ. In summary, mercy is God withholding what we deserve and God keeping us from eternal damnation. And as we consider foundations, this is foundational in, in understanding the one who never commands. This foundation is his mercy. And this letter was written to believers in Rome, but it's also relevant for here, for us here today at Good News. But there's also a message for anyone who has not believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We can live this life as Christians because God has been merciful to us. And loving one another is the proof that we live and walk by His mercy. And friend, if you're here today and you don't know the great mercy of God, you can believe. Believe in Him and be saved. I've done some remodeling work uh, in my home throughout the years. Um, in some rooms, total gut jobs, some painting, some electrical. And I think that you'll appreciate that the most important element in this type of work is the preparation. Sort of like laying a foundation. It's critical. Verses 1 and 2 are critical in us understanding verse 10. As an example, if you don't lay the proper foundation for ceramic uh, stone or, or tile, ceramic, ceramic tiles or stones, I'm sorry, which as a first step is the laying of an approximate 6 by 4 panel of cement, also known as durac. And what will happen in time that the tiles will crack with the stress as the subfloor gives because the foundation is not solid. In the end, it doesn't matter how nice it looks, it won't be long before they begin to pop out or crack. In the same way, you can't will yourself to love or forgive by just looking at these commands and just say, I need to be that more. Sooner or later, due to the pressure caused by our sinful nature, as we rub up against each other, we'll stop being loving, and our patience will just run out. 
In order for love to be genuine, as stated in verse, four, uh, verse 9, it must have a proper foundation. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And unlike the foundation of the English department, that ultimately was the demise of the building, that only lasted 54 years, this foundation that I'm talking about, that Romans 12 talks about, has been established in eternity. The mercy of God demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're being called to love one another with a love that is genuine. What does that mean? And I think more critical in our understanding is the basis of that command. And more than just knowing in our heads, Paul's talking about an experiential knowledge, which means by experience. And the result of mercy, therefore, we can walk a new, a new walk or experience a new life in Christ where the old has passed and behold, all things are new. When the invalid man in John chapter 5, or in John chapter 5, encountered Jesus, he was healed by Jesus. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk, he said. Later on, Jesus finds the man again in the temple and says to him, see, you're well. And he tells him, sin no more. And you might think, what, what this has to do with love? But it has everything to do with love. Because love is about obedience and hating evil. And we'll see a little bit more on that third, uh, later on. But one critical lesson here is that as recipients of God's mercy, there is only one proper response, and that is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. Chosen wrote about, about His mercy as judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, so mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. The divine mercy is not a temporary mood, but it is who God is. And beloved, we must think rightly about God. What we think about Him will be revealed in how we treat people, especially how we treat one another in the church. And loving one another is the mark of a Christian. It's how the world will know that we're His. His mercy is a manifestation of a passionate love that He has for us. 1 Timothy 1.16 shows us that we have received mercy so that Jesus might display His perfect patience to those who are about to believe. And good news, I just want to say that you and I are put on display as God's workmanship here in Logan Square, in Humble Park, in your respective communities, to display His mercy in our lives to a lost world. And nothing will speak more powerfully than when we love one another. And as a final thought from the knowledge of the Holy, Tozer wrote about our place with God. For what right will we have to be there? Did we not in times past walk according to the course of this world? according to the evil prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. And did we not once live in the lust of our flesh? And were we not by nature the children of wrath? But we who were one time enemies and alienated in our minds through wicked works shall then see God face to face with his name written on our foreheads. We who have earned banishment will enjoy communion with God. We who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven. And all through the tender mercy of God. And I'd like to pose Tozer's opening question to you. What right will we have to be there? Why do we act as if we're so entitled to anything? Paul's leading the Romans to a logical conclusion as opposed to just giving a command. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The foundation has been laid an eternal, immutable, infinite mercy that not only has been given to us by God, but it reveals that He in fact is mercy. And all the attributes that describe that mercy, He in fact is is 
And the result of this mercy is the foundation on which we lay the first stone, and that's our bodies. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does Paul mean to present your bodies? Is he talking about the body in a literal sense? And there's more to this answer, but in one word, yes. John MacArthur writes, Our bodies incorporate our humanness, our humanness incorporates our flesh, and our flesh incorporates our sin. Romans 6 and 7. Our bodies incorporate the evil longings of our minds, our emotions, and our will. And here's a short short definition of sacrifice. A sacrifice is a type of offering of an animal, a plant, a human life, or some material possession to a deity as appropriation or to pay homage. Now Paul wasn't talking about appropriation because Jesus satisfied God's judgment for our sin. And this is a little bit more than just paying homage to God. This sacrifice that Paul talks about in relation to our body has everything to do with the intentional act of dying to self. To suffer a loss, to give up, renounce because of the mercy of God. Some might think that coming to church on Sunday is a sacrifice. It isn't. We have nothing that could satisfy Him. He needs nothing. God is self-sufficient. Christ's sacrifice has everything to do with God clearing away for man to approach Him. And us having faith in Him and living out this faith is our response to Him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. As an example of a sacrifice, uh, I found through Daniel in chapter 1. He was about a college-age young man. He was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And it says about Daniel in chapter 1 that he purposed in his heart not to defile himself by eating the king's food. Now this decision could have cost Daniel his life. Daniel knew that if he ate the king's food, he would be defiled and he would not honor God. So to abstain from certain things is a way that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We do it as a result of God's mercy in our life. We do it knowing that we no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. See, we feed the flesh with the things that we listen to and watch, as an example. And with suddenness, the enemy begins to offer us foods that are not honoring to God. It never starts, starts off as a blatant sin. You see, Paul says that everything is not sinful, but not everything is beneficial. So be careful by using that line, that this is not a sin just to satisfy yourself. I got a line for you, and that's the glory of God. And how does what you do, or do it with, or say, or say it to glorify God? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice is to renounce those things that are not pleasing to Him. It means establishing disciplines in your life because you understand what is required based on the price that was paid. What's the measure of a real man? I'm going to direct my focus here. What picture comes to mind? Being a man means doing what needs to be done. But in this case, it's in order to to attain the fullness of Christ. Faith, resolve, and discipline. And I want to say to our men here at Good News, and this based on Ephesians chapter 4, that we only reach full maturity as men when Jesus Christ is the one by which we measure what it means to be a man. Earlier I quoted from 1 Corinthians 3 where it says that no foundation... For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And our manhood is defined in the person of Jesus Christ. And as a people of God, all of us, recipients of God's mercy, we must present our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, but I discipline my body, I buffet, I beat my body, and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. As a final thought on presenting the body, I'd like to leave you with two verses. The first one found in Romans chapter 6, where it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your body, to make you obey its passions. Our salvation is not yet complete in regards to our bodies, but we have the Spirit of the living God living inside of us. Therefore, if sin reigns in our body, it's because we let it. It's by choice. Because you see, we have died and have been risen with Christ so that we too might walk in newness of life. What is this thing that Paul says, let not reign in your body when he's, when he's referring to sin? Fill in the blank. Is it sexual sin? Is it anger? Is it fear? Is it apathy? And apathy is reflected in your lack of interest in the things of God. And when you consider His mercy, it ought to enlisted songs of praise and thanksgiving. Is it lying? Is it cheating? Is it gambling? Is it drunkenness? Paul says in, in Romans 6.13, Do not present your members... Do not... Ah, excuse me. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And just in case you're wondering what this has to do with loving one another, well, it says in verse 9, let your love be genuine, uphold what is evil, hold fast to what is good. To love God is to obey God. And to obey God is to love your brother. And to love your brother is to walk in holiness. And in case you might be doubting what I just said, I want to encourage you to read First John, the whole book. There's a difference between sinning and living in sin. We sin that we're moving towards perfection. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the Bible says. My sin affects you, and your sin affects me, because we are members one of another. When I broke my toe last fall, my whole body felt it through and through. After I healed, uh, I began therapy, and what I found out during my therapy was that my ankle, and my knee, and my hip, and my back were all affected by the break in my foot. Because that part of my foot, a little baby toe, could not carry its weight. See, my toe is a member one with the rest of my body, just like we are members one of another. So for better or for worse, we're all affected by each other. Worship is the call to a life of surrender that's evidenced through sacrifice, meaning we do not live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose. And he who died and rose said this, to love one another, just as I have loved you. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. A holy sacrifice is what he's calling us to present to him. And I came across in John chapter 12 a story about Mary, when she poured an expensive perfume, an ointment from pure nard, it says, it also says that she wiped his feet, Jesus' feet, with, with her hair. And I want to talk a little bit about this oil. The oil was well known at the time. It was obtained as a luxury in ancient Egypt, the Near East and Rome, where, where the main ingredients of this perfume was nardinum. And nard was also used as one of the eleven herbs for the incense in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And coming back to John chapter 12, the first ten verses, it was six days before the Passover. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, uses a pound of pure nard to anoint Jesus' feet. Judas Iscariot, the keeper of the money bag, asked why the ointment wasn't sold for 300 denarii instead. And 300 denarii at the time that represented a year's wages. This perfume or perfume, as I discovered, 
in my research was among the best, if not the best in the world at the time. So for just for the sake of perspective, I found, with a little help, the world's most expensive perfume. And it actually says it on the bottle. And it's, it's called Clive Christian from London, England. And 1.6 fluid ounces costs $865. Now it was one pound of nard that Mary used on Jesus. So, taking into consideration the cost of this Clive from Christian, one pound of that would be approximately $12,542.50. That was a holy sacrifice. See, Mary surrendered something prized and desirable for the sake of Jesus, whom she considered as having a higher and more pressing claim on her, even more than this expensive bottle of perfume. Are you willing to give up whatever it is that represents such value to you? Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. God sacrificed his son for you. See, only a living and holy sacrifice, the giving of our best, is what's acceptable to God. Now, there's another element to this sacrifice, and that includes that of us offering up our minds. Excuse me. It says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to focus uh, on, the two, on two words here, conform, because we're called to not be conformed to this world. And conform is from the word sushi matizo, which refers to an outward expression that does not reflect what is within. And then there's the word transformed, which stems from the Greek verb metamorpho, which means change in outward appearance. And the point is that we're not to be conformed to this world because it no longer reflects Christ who now lives in us. But we are to change our outward behavior to reflect our inner man. The Bible shows us in Ephesians chapter 2 that at one time we lived in the passions of our flesh. We lived out the desires of our body and mind. But it says in verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And I just want to testify this as such a true statement by experience because I stand here as a man today many of you sit here as a man and woman who have found Christ who have been washed by the blood you have been sanctified you have been brought into a newness of life so as we consider these two words that we are not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed we are to reflect what is in us and that is Jesus Christ Therefore, it says, it's a lot of therefores in the epistles, and they're all based on the cross of Jesus Christ. They're all based on the sacrifice. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old man, the old has passed, and behold, the new has come. So the result of a walk of repentance is us knowing and being able to discern what is good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. But you first have to sacrifice your will. Commit your body. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How does this renewal take place? And how does one renew the mind? And I just like to offer two suggestions. And uh, one of them is read the word. It says in Psalm 119 verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure?
This happened once before, and I'm just going to follow suit as to what we did last time. If we could just kind of bow our heads and pray for our sister. Father God, I just want to lift up my sister Maida, God, and you know her ailment, Lord. And just pray, God, that you would give her body strength, that you would help her to recover, God, that she would feel well soon. Right now, God, we pray for her. We lift her up, Lord God, and pray, Lord, that those caring for her right now, Lord, would be able to meet the immediate need that she has right now. We pray that your hand would be on her, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. going to pause here for a moment while they How does one renew his mind? Here are two suggestions. Read the word. It says in Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? And there it says, young man, this is speaking to all of us. And we keep our way pure by guarding it according to your word. We do it by reading God's word. We do it by ingesting God's word. The second thing is resolve. And as stated earlier through Daniel, in chapter 1, verse 8, we saw that Daniel purposed or resolved in his heart not to defile himself. And I'm not talking about self-will here or you exercising your ability to do. We can't do nothing when it comes to righteousness outside of God's grace through His Holy Spirit. But I'm talking about a willingness and a desire of wanting to honor God. And if this is your desire, He will give you the grace needed. What does this worship look like? In verses 3 to 21, Paul shows us what this worship looks like. And it's evidenced in love through the gifts. Our gifts are a means of expressing that love. Specifically as we look at or we consider verses 3 to 8. But i got to point this out. It doesn't say it directly here, but when you take God's word as a whole, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 13, you can have gifts, yet not have love. And in essence even with the gifts, be nothing and gain nothing. And those two words are in the text when you read 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, conformed, which is an outward expression that does not reflect what is in us. Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed because that's not who you are inside now if you claim to be a believer. In other words, don't do that. And I'm doing, I'm reading intentionally slow because time is not going to permit me to work through all these verses, but I want to kind of spit them out in bullet form. But it's all based because there's a connection with do not be conformed and being transformed when you consider these positive and negatives through verses 3 and 21. What are we commanded not to do as we look at these verses? And again, remember, we're commanded not to do them because it doesn't reflect who we are in Christ. And it starts off in verse 3, but don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Don't be apathetic and lazy. That's what slothful means. Do not curse those who persecute you. Verse 14. Verse 16 
Uh, it says, do not be haughty. It also says there, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, never avenge yourself. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. We're called to love one another. It says in verse 10, with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, it says. And again, this can only take place because of God's great mercy. And that having been said, the first evidence of that great mercy in our lives is seen in how we serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. And good news, I just want to say that you have all been given grace. You all have a purpose and a function in the body of Christ. Each of you has been given a gift or gifts to serve one another. Paul says about this, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And I know that the text says himself and he, but I'm trying to quote and offer application at the same time. These gifts, these gifts that God has given you are the result of God's grace and faith as seen in verse 3. We must exercise these gifts with humility, especially in light that they are gifts of God given to us to be used by Him, through Him, and for Him in the building of His church. And this is a quote here. If we take this with full seriousness, seeing God as the sole author of the gifts and ourselves as totally dependent on Him for all, it's unlikely that we will be arrogant because humility proceeds from genuine faith and love. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that you ought not be arrogant or rude. You ought not insist on your own way. Irritable and being resentful are not characteristics of love. don't have a lot of time I just I need, to, I need to be direct and three questions I want to leave with you in regard to what I've just read how does your attitude compare in light of all of this and how you exercise your gifts and if you're not exercising your gifts I kind of I want to point back to my broken foot for about three months I wasn't able to walk the way we're supposed to walk. And when I started to walk, I had to go to therapy because I was walking funny. Because that part of my foot wasn't carrying its weight. So if you don't exercise your gifts, you're hurting the body. And I want to exhort you because you have been given a gift. Exercise it. Use it. Go to somebody. Find out what it is. Because it's for the benefit of the body. Are you demonstrating brotherly love? And are you doing it in regards to the gifts? Are you doing it for Him? For the benefit of the body? Or are you doing it for yourself? And that's usually reflected when we don't respond favorably. When we don't get the um, accolades that we might want as humans. And that doesn't mean that we don't recognize we don't encourage one another. But we don't do it for those reasons. We do it for him who died and rose. So these principles of love are to be practiced in the church. As stated. And also in our interpersonal relationships. And due to time constraint, I've compiled another list. That's found in the text that represents... What being transformed, these are the things that we need to be practicing that reflect what's inside, but they need to be seen outside. And they are, let your love be genuine. Hate evil. And when we hate evil, we avoid it. When you don't like something or someone and you see them coming your way, naturally you just kind of go the other way. 
That's what it means here. Hate evil. Avoid it. Hold fast to what is good. To hold fast is a response. In the Old Testament, the only response that's acceptable to God's call to obedience, hold fast. Be devoted in brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be fervent, enthusiastic in spirit. Serve the Lord. And again, this kind of goes to who do you do it for? For His glory or yours? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be devoted in prayer. And I just want to pause here for a moment. Because prayer is very central in all of this. As I, as I take into consideration what it says in First Peter chapter 2, where it talks about the war within us, uh, the waging war within us in regards to our passions. And that's not just talking about sexual sin. The passions, love, hate. There's a war going on within us. I don't want to be loving. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to deal with this brother this way. There's a different way which I used, that I used to do it, and some of y'all too. That's not what we do now. And we're always constantly, in some form, uh, one way or the other, battling inside to do what's right. But there's an evil raging within us, in our flesh. And we need to be devout. We need to be constant in prayer. So as I take this Peter, I also... Uh, 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 couple that or join it together with uh, Exodus chapter 17 where we see Israel at war with the Amalekites and it shows us that as long as Moses kept praying and not just by himself with the support of others it's a beautiful picture for us as Moses prayed with the support of others Israel prevailed when Moses stopped praying or his hands were coming down the tide of the world reverse. As long as we remain devout and committed to praying in the closet by yourself and praying together with the body, praying for one another, we too will prevail. And the last two are contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. The last one came as a the last minute edit as God was just kind of pressing in my heart and um, I kind of was like well that's not what I wrote down here God and then um, and it stems from a song that was the first song that we sang here and I guess that was the sign because months ago uh, a lot of you guys I'm sure know and for those that don't I'm a police officer and for three months in the summer, I was assigned to the rougher neighborhoods of our city to work from the hours of 5 p.m. to 3 a.m. And I was struggling in my heart with a lot of things based on what I saw. A lot of what you saw on the news, I was there for a lot of those things. Seeing young men shot down and killed on the streets. And just uh, the evil things that we could do to each other. And I went to some of you for prayer because I was having a hard time with what I was seeing. See, I understand justice, but I have a hard time with mercy. And I prayed to God, help me to see what I need to see, what I know I need to see. And I went to some of you with that request. And I thank you because I know you prayed. Because one, one morning, as I was reading through the Bible, I came across a verse in, uh, in Luke. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. It says, But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And as I read that, 
kind of like I'm doing now, and I still stare at it. Because as I read that, God was telling me, reminding me that one time I walked with an ungrateful heart and did evil things, and He was merciful to me. And He spoke, not with words that I can say, He said this, but as I read His word, He reminded me that He was merciful to me and that I was to be merciful in the same way that He showed me mercy. Church, to the world around us, we are to be merciful to those who are even practicing evil, who might even be our enemies. God is calling us to do what does not come naturally for us to do, but remember what's inside of you. Remember that by the mercy of God, we can do this. He has shown you mercy, and therefore you are called to show mercy. We've been called to a life of surrender. Are you presenting yourself as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable by God? That is evidence through your loving one another in the areas of how you exercise the gifts that God has given you in the church, in your relationships to one another, in the world that you live in. This is your worship to God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, which art in heaven, we, your children, are often troubled in mind, hearing within us at the same time the affirmation of faith, the accusations of conscience. We are sure that there is nothing that could attract the love of one as holy and just as you that you have declared your unchanging love for us in Christ. Your love is uncaused and undeserved. You are yourself the reason for the love with which we are loved. Help us to believe the intensity and the eternity of the love that has found us. Then love will cast out fear and our troubled hearts will be at peace. Trusting not what we are, but in what you have declared yourself to be. And as a result, we can love one another. Amen. Please stand.